Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, after Friday's disaster with the Rogers outage, major telecom companies are now required to create a crisis plan altogether. Is it time for Canada to open up the market to other companies? Canadian premiers presented a united front in Victoria, B.C. as they demanded more health care funding from Ottawa. Just how important is that funding to help staff cuts at hospitals? And why is it better for the health of the sport of golf if the Open winner is not from the Breakaway Live Golf Series? Gary McKay, who's a journalist with the Pro Shop Magazine and Hamilton Spectator, will join us to talk about that. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. To begin with today, let's uh, talk about what's still on everybody's minds, of course, and that was the big shutdown uh, last Friday uh, with uh, the breakdown with Rogers uh, Telecommunications. Uh, we know now the Federal Innovation Minister has given Canada's telecom companies two months to come up with a deal to improve their network reliability. Uh, Minister Champagne says that he met with the heads of the major companies and directed them to come up with uh, some things well, like emergency roaming, mutual assistance during outages, emergency communications, just a little bit more of what the minister had in mind. I wanted to make sure that in no uncertain terms they understand how Canadians felt the situation to be unacceptable and that they need to take immediate uh, initial steps to improve the resiliency of our network in Canada. So with that in mind, uh, and the best intentions, I guess, of the minister, uh, is it going to get better and consistently better? Or are we headed for another one of these terrible days like we've had in the past? Joining us to talk about all this is uh, Daniel Chai, who is a lecturer of communication, culture, information, and technology at the University of Toronto. Professor, pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you for the time today. Thank you for having me on. Have, have our uh, concerns been assuaged now that the ministers jumped in and said, you guys have to get your act together? Uh, that strikes me as a bit of a Hail Mary. Uh, two months is not <laughs> enough time to uh, upgrade antiquated infrastructure on Rogers Park. Uh, you know, this has been an ongoing issue. They had another outage in April 2021. Uh, the CEO, Tony Staffieri, uh, recently said that this was also a routine maintenance issue. Uh, I don't understand how a, a major outage of a network across Canada impacts millions of people could be... Uh, just a, a you know a, a routine maintenance issue. So obviously two months and uh, trying to rope in your competitors uh, is sort of a hail mary by the minister to try to get a solution to this. And by the way, yeah. I'm on a Rogers phone today, so I hope I don't conk out. <laughs> I'm a Rogers customer too, and and I got to tell you, I, it was hell on Friday because I mean you know we're broadcasting remotely certainly, and I didn't know what was going on. You know my initial reaction is oh my gosh, okay this my home stuff is all screwed up. Uh, but I couldn't get in touch with anybody. And and you get a sense of, of helplessness when that sort of thing happens, uh, which begs the next question. It's, it's bad enough that it happened, I suppose. Uh, but the way in which they handled it, I thought, was just atrocious as well, leaving a lot of people in the dark about what was going on and what they could do about it. Well, you know, uh, customer service has always been bad with our Canadian telcos because it's an oligopoly. You only have really three national players. Uh, two of them share the same network, which is uh, Bell and Telus, because they built them out. So it's a more recent network. It's a bit more robust. Uh, Rogers has the legacy network. And you're right, yes, the lack of transparency, accountability uh, are major problems. And uh, what we really need is uh, an inquiry to kind of uh, put it out on the table as to why Rogers couldn't get its uh, act together and make sure its network was functioning and uh, secure against these type of problems. And uh, typically these networks should be developed uh, with redundancies built in. So if one part of the network goes down, uh, there's another part of it that acts as a backup. And uh, what we can see here is there is a a systemic uh, network-wide failure, and, and that's a 
very problematic. If you're if you're a Rogers uh, shareholder, like many of us are, we hold it in pensions, we hold it directly, not just uh, as well as users of, of the network, uh, business or individuals. It's, it's definitely problematic. Well, and we found that on Friday, didn't we, Professor? I mean, but the reliance that so many other agencies had, it was one thing to say, okay, my phone's not working. But uh, a lot of uh, TV and radio stations right across the country had trouble broadcasting uh, because they rely on these these telecommunications companies, which begs the question, and you just mentioned about uh, com- competition. The, we've got the big three here, and, and as far as these three are concerned, that's all they want in this country. I mean, every time the CRTC even or the government of the day even entertains the idea of opening up the market, uh, it, it seems to get shut down. These uh, three companies usually run over to the CRTC and said, you can't do that, you know, with Canadian identity, and we'll go out of business, yada, yada. And they, they tend to fall for it and say, okay, fine, nobody else can come in. Well, what's interesting about that is both Shaw, which is uh, the acquisition target of Rogers and Rogers itself, are both family-owned companies. So you've got uh, three national players. One of them is a family-owned business. And the uh, the other the other one is being acquired, uh, so that's uh, and it's a major competitor in the west of Canada. Uh, so you're you're really reducing not just national competition but regional competition with these with this uh, this uh, merger. It's raised the flag with the competition bureau as well. Uh, they don't really like the prospect of having a, a merger losing Shaw uh, to Rogers because you're. You know, you're effectively increasing prices. You're reducing competition. Uh, what we really need is uh, foreign investment and competitors to come into the country. The problem is back uh, when Stephen Harper was around, uh, the old prime minister there, he uh, he tried to bring in some American competition, but they felt like they were being used to uh, raise the prices in the auction process on Spectrum. And so they backed out of it. And what we really need to do is create incentives for foreign investment, foreign telcos to come into the country, from, especially from the U.S., because they have the know-how expertise and they're not trying to undermine our political system. Um, the, the key thing is to have them come into the country because that's going to create competition. That's going to reduce your, your prices. Canada pays some of the highest prices in all the world. All the, many studies have confirmed that uh, for data, for cell phone plans, and uh, that would also create uh, extra networks and create redundancies. It would also force the competition here, like Rogers, to upgrade their networks, to uh, to really spend the money. Uh, instead of trying to acquire competitors and reduce competition in the country, it's forcing them to upgrade their infrastructure so they don't have blackouts like this. And, and there's interest in that. Back to your situation with the, with the Harper government, uh, Tony Clement was the minister in charge then, and he made that announcement that they were going to be, you know, entertain ideas. I think Verizon was on the phone five minutes later and said, yeah, let's talk. Uh, yep. There are companies that I think would love to get up here and, and, and see this as an opportunity, but, but you know, the door is locked. Yeah, there are. Uh, I mean, they've, you know, they, they use certain excuses, like they said, uh, well, you know, it's very expensive and so forth. But the reality is uh, they actually came out and said as well, they don't want to be used as part of a political football. Uh, they don't yeah. want to be used just to jack up the uh, prices, what they pay on at auction. So what you want to do is maybe create an auction process and give away Spectrum to just foreign competition that's been vetted. You can have some Canadian ownership in there, you know, at least maybe 50% or 49% is, is Canadian-owned. But uh, right now, you don't even have that. So uh, I think opening it up to more foreign competition, um, you know, at the same time, you want to be kind of mindful of which countries or, or which investors from which countries yeah. are coming in uh, for national security purposes. But the reality is, you know, Verizon, Sprint, uh, 
AT and T. There's, I mean, uh, they're pretty, they're legit players. There's, there's no, there's no reason why we shouldn't encourage uh, them to come into into the country. Since we're talking a lot about our, our, our American friends, uh, the FCC down there, which is the, of course, the American equivalent of the CRTC up here for our listeners' sake. Uh, they've already put some restrictions in there about, you know, watch each other's back. In other words, if one company has a failure like Rogers did, uh, it's beholden to the other companies to offer an alternative. In other words, you know, you slide over here so we're not losing service for 18 hours or something. Uh, I know the minister sort of talked about that, uh, and I don't know whether, as you mentioned, Professor, two months is enough time to do that. It seems like the logical thing to do right now so that we're not being held hostage anymore. It is. It definitely having the ability to roam on a competitor's network when there's a situation of national urgency uh, or national security, such as, uh, what, you know, what we saw here where, you know, you had entire industries shut down and businesses shut down. That's, that's definitely an important thing that they can do. Uh, the question is getting the, the, the comp- competition to work together. Uh, now, two months, you might be able to do that um, on sort of a, an emergency basis. Um, but at the same time, there's certain things that have to be kind of worked out, which is like compensation. Um, you know, you, you know, when you're doing that, you're giving away part of your network and so forth. You're basically helping out your, your competition. Um, so there has to be some things about remuneration. I'm sure there, those discussions are going to be had because, uh, you know, this is uh, something for optics for the public is to say, yes, we're doing something, but behind the scenes, I'm sure there's probably logistics that have to be worked out and ho- hopefully that two month time frame is enough but i but you know if this is a hardware systemic issue with rogers i don't think the two months will be enough for them uh there's a class action lawsuit of course that was announced i guess it was it, now it hasn't been legitimized yet so we don't know if it's going to go through uh and it was actually in response to what roger said was going to be compensation i think you're going to we were all going to get a credit for two days worth of service uh, which is insignificant, I'm sure, to most of us. Is it going to take something like that, and we don't know whether or not this is even going to make it through the courts, uh, for these three companies to say, okay, we got to get our act together? Well, I don't know. I, I look at my plan, I think two days is worth $8, and I can tell you the uh, amount of uh, <laughs> annoyance and problems that we went through were a lot more than 8 bucks. Certainly, you know, if you're a business and you were shut down for the day, you'd be out of the pocket a couple thousand dollars in profit, and that's, the, that's make or break for your payroll. Uh, so I don't think that's enough compensation. The class action, by the way, uh, the last I read, is they're asking for a base compensation of $400 per mm-hmm. individual or customer or business that's, that was impacted by the Shaw shutdown. I, I don't know if, that, if it will be certified because normally class actions require uh, some uniformity when it comes to the damages experienced as well as uh, sort of uh, the court being able to kind of you know, piece it out and say, yes, this is how much, and these are the individuals and, or businesses that were impacted. Um, identifying that class uh, might be problematic as well as the compensation. So, but hey, you know what? All the more power to them. If uh, there are more class actions, it does make uh, businesses more mindful and careful in the future. Well, let's uh, see if the government continues to hold their feet to the fire. We have a tendency, of course, in this country to just let things fade away after three or four weeks. Uh, Professor, great to get your perspective on this. Thanks so much for the time today. Okay, thank you. Take care. Take care. Professor Daniel Chai, uh, lecturer of Communication, Culture, and Information Technology at the University of Toronto. And by the way, as you've heard on the news, uh, the service is not fully restored just yet. Uh, in some parts, and uh, some companies still suffering uh, some outages, too, from time to time. Very frustrating. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. 
Over the last couple of days, premiers from across the country are in Victoria, B.C. this week for a meeting of the Council of the Federation, chaired by B.C.'s John Horgan, who is the outgoing premier of uh, British Columbia, of course. Uh, they're going to be demanding more health care funding from the federal government. Global's Richard Sussman has details. Premier Horgan says in this country that it was a 50-50 split. Half the money came from Ottawa, half came from the provinces. Now it's much closer to the provinces paying 80% of the way for healthcare and the federal government paying 20%. Horgan has argued that this is not fair and needs to change, especially as the provinces are reeling from the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and healthcare systems across this country that continue to struggle. Healthcare is not the only thing on the agenda. The premiers will also be focusing in on the issue of inflation. Horgan says that one of the priorities will be sharing best practices amongst the provinces in terms of how they are dealing with record-breaking gas prices, as well as increases on everyday goods like groceries. So those are some of the challenges and how the government's going to get along and how are they going to try to cooperate or are they going to cooperate, I guess, more importantly. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Daniel Melan, who is the director of the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada. Uh, Daniel, pleasure to have you back on the program. Thank you so much for joining us today. Good morning. Thanks for the invitation. It's, it's been a little while since uh, the premiers have had a face-to-face meeting, of course, because of the pandemic. Uh, three years, I guess, specifically since they've had this meeting uh, all together. Uh, but it's the same theme that we've been hearing for years and years and years. Uh, you know, we need money for health care. Uh, th- th- this is an old song that doesn't seem to have much of a, in the way of a solution. Uh, the prime minister promised a few months ago that, uh, that yeah, he says, you, I think you guys are right. Uh, we'll talk about it. But still nothing forthcoming for, from the federal government about what's going to be happening here. It's got to be awfully frustrating. Yes, you know, the the premiers have been asking for basically the same thing. This massive increase in federal uh, health transfer, um, you know, they have been asking this uh, uh, since uh, last year. Um, and it, really the rhetoric and the content of, the, of their demand, really, uh, they haven't changed. Uh, so there is nothing new here on, under the sun, and the federal response has also <laughs> remained the same. So um, I don't think it's going anywhere um, anytime soon. The sense that the provinces will keep asking for more money, and and the feds uh, will uh, you know take their time and assess the situation. But I don't think that what the provinces are asking for uh, will be delivered by the federal government. So. There will be some compromise at some point. In the end, it's the feds who decide. It's unilateral. The provinces don't have a word to say, uh, formally at least. But of course, um, it, it's possible to have an agreement. It happens, say, under Paul Martin, right? Um, but the Ottawa doesn't need um, uh, really to formally consult with the provinces uh, to change the way the Canada health transfer works. I know we can get bogged down in numbers, but numbers count in a situation like this when it comes to funding something as important as health care. Uh, and, and as the report just mentioned, and, and you know this, of course, historically, you know, when this whole thing started back in the 1960s, it was a 50-50 split between the federal government and, and the provincial governments, uh, each kicking in. How did we get to this point right now where about 80% of it is the provincial responsibility? Yeah, well... I think we have to take some of these numbers with a grain of salt. The the big change occurred a long time ago in 1977, and the federal government did uh, transform the logic of the system. So instead of paying 50% of the, you know, 50 cents for each dollar that the provinces will spend on healthcare, the federal government uh, created what we call a block grant 
So instead of paying 50%, said now we'll give you uh, a certain amount every year, regardless of what you spend. But they also gave the provinces tax room, what we call tax points. So they reduce, say, the, the, the federal income tax to leave room uh, uh, for the provinces to, to take that space over. And so the numbers that the provinces are talking about, 20% or a bit above 20%, that doesn't include the tax room that the federal government left to the provinces long time ago. And so um, it's true that it's no longer 50%, but uh, um, it's not as simple as what the provinces are saying. But it sells well, doesn't it? <laughs> when you throw numbers out like that, it, I think it underscores the, what they consider to be the, the, the emergency attitude that we seem to have with the system right now. What is going to come out of this? I mean, do they come back with something? Uh, as you mentioned, I know we can. For the, they, you mentioned the twenty-two percent that they say that they're paying. They want to bump that up to thirty-five. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. Uh, but is there, is there some middle ground that they can all leave this uh, this this meeting at the end of the day, Daniel, and say, "Well, at least we got this." Well, uh, so this meeting won't produce any results, of course, <laughs> uh, uh, in terms of uh, convincing the feds to, to move forward. It, it keeps, you know, pressure on, on Ottawa to at least talk about this. Um, what we can, the, the thing is, it's not just that the provinces want more money. They want more money without any strings attached, right? Mm -hmm. Without any conditions. Uh, they just want a, a check, a blank check, or just you know, or a check with a number on it, but no no conditions attached. And I think that there's reluctance on the part of the feds to do this. And yes, I don't think that they want to give the province. I think increasing um, the the size, the Canada Health Transfer, increasing um, uh, not just the size, but even the you know the indexation mechanism of how much it increases every year. That is certainly uh, I think in the cards, but. Uh, I don't think that what the provinces are asking will be delivered by the feds. Um, there are different things that could happen. Uh, there could be a grand agreement between Ottawa and the provinces like happened um, uh, back in uh, under Paul Martin. But I think this is not the most likely scenario. What we can see is what happened some years back is individual agreements between Ottawa and each of the provinces and territories and say, we will give you more money, but, you know, uh, for certain things um, and we'll um, have some conditions attached or at least we'll gather data about this or that. And, and that's another possibility to give more money to the provinces. But that's kind of a divide and conquest strategy where we deal you deal with uh, you deal with each province and territory separately rather than as a group because when Paul Martin did that uh, um, nearly uh, two decades ago um, 18 years ago uh, the feds were very generous um, but um, it, it seems that the provinces got a good deal and after that we saw Stephen Harper and more recently uh, uh, Justin Trudeau uh, acting unilaterally uh, uh, in, in in terms of renewing the uh, well the the Canada health transfer and um, and not giving uh, uh, the same deal as they got under under Paul Martin in terms of you know the annual increase uh, uh, of the Canada health transfer and, and it causes as you mentioned some internal bickering among the premiers themselves hey, hey how come Quebec got this and and we didn't get this etc cetera, etc cetera. and you're right it, when you it's not an apples to apples comparison and it causes a great deal of consternation uh, but they do dabble in this i know that 
one of the things that the premiers always seem to have a problem with here, as you mentioned, is uh, is accountability. You know, where is, where's the money? Where did you spend the money that we gave you? And they don't want to talk about stuff like that. As you say, they just want the check and say, thank you very much, and we'll spend it as we see fit. And that seems to be a stumbling block, doesn't it? Yes. Uh, so um, that that's why I think Ottawa, the feds will prefer to uh, have these individual individualized agreements and money allocated to specific things with some conditions attached but, or some common targets or something. But the provinces, of course, they want the money and they want to do um, what they want with the money without uh, um, uh, having to report back to the feds, right? Um, and you have some provinces like Alberta and Quebec, I think, who are the premiers are very, you know... Um, have a have a very strong uh i would say take on this but i think other provinces are maybe a bit more flexible especially say atlantic provinces smaller provinces that need the money badly considering population aging and other factors um so i think that yes uh if the the feds will deal with provinces individually uh, this grand you know coalition will 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 i think fall apart quite rapidly that's why the premiers what they they prefer to uh you know meet with the 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 pm as a group and try to uh extract concessions from the 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 prime minister uh um collectively but i think the divide and conquest strategy of the feds will 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 i think here uh, uh certainly um help them uh, divide the, the 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 premiers and maybe have individualized deals. And if one province says yes, then after that you can use this agreement as a template and and so forth. Um, but it's still possible that the feds could increase the Canada health transfer in general for all the provinces and territories. Uh, but this won't be <laughs> as generous as, as as what the provinces are asking for. That that is absolutely certain. I think so, yeah. Uh, shift, if I could, for a second to one of the other key issues it, is immigration. Uh, we all know that coming out of the pandemic, as we, we struggle to, to get into economic recovery mode here, uh, there are a number of different factors. But one of them, of course, is, is a skilled labor shortage. We can't, there are enough people fill the jobs that are coming available. The employment rate is, is incredibly low, and that's good news. Uh, but a lot of employers are having trouble. And they look at immigration and say, we've got to do something about this. We've got to increase immigration. And there seems to be unanimity among the premiers that, that this has to be done uh, as soon as possible. Do you, can you see an agreement there? Because uh, there's, a, 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 again, a mathematical formula here, but, you know, the number of immigrants each province is, is yeah. allowed to, to process each year. And, and they say it's way too low. Any change going to happen there? Well, I think here the kind of troublemaker is Quebec, uh, unsurprisingly, mm -hmm. considering the, 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 the past positions of the CAQ government on immigration. Um, I think they have to tread, the, the, the CAQ is treading carefully because they actually uh, now are, it's part of their, plat, plat, it would be part of their platform for the forthcoming Quebec elections and the elections are in early October. Um, what they want to have a new deal with Ottawa on immigration, uh, uh, even more autonomy, um, they are talking about taking over family reunification, uh, which I think will be a long shot. Um, but their position on immigration, I think, is is quite different from the one of, say, Ontario or British Columbia. So I'm not sure, again, that, you know, uh, the uh, the agreement is that deep <laughs> on the surface. Uh, they might seem to agree, but there are, I think, differences, especially when you compare Quebec with uh, most other provinces.
And, and that leads to a number of different issues uh, that are related to that. For instance, housing. I mean, we already know there's a housing shortage here, too. Uh, you know, increasing the population, increasing immigration uh, may exacerbate that existing problem, too. So you, you can't really talk about any of these things in isolation, can you? Absolutely. Housing is such a, a priority uh, um, and sp in large cities. But now we see also in, in other parts of the country, it's no longer just, you know, Vancouver, Toronto or uh, now Montreal. It, it's, it's really a problem uh, uh, across the board. And, and it's a problem that's difficult to solve, but it requires, I think, collaboration between Ottawa, uh, the provinces and the municipalities. Um, and the municipalities often are not really at the table uh, or they are, you know, the provinces <laughs> control them. Huh? They are known as the creatures of the provinces, but it, it, it really takes um, uh, uh, a lot of, um, I think, uh, collaboration to really address this issue. And... Um, I think that Ottawa could do more here, but but the provinces have to do more as well. Um, and and just passing the buck is is not enough. So um, this is really one of the biggest challenges. That and inflation more generally, yeah, not just uh, in housing, but but beyond. We see our people are concerned about uh, the current uh, inflation crisis. Uh, you go to buy some food, you do your groceries, you go to a restaurant, you see it's quite obvious that prices have gone up quite dramatically and they are uh, it's still going on. And that requires also maybe some um, uh, try to, you know, think about best practices or understanding, you know, what, what are the different provinces doing, how they can learn from one another about this. But again, uh, the provinces alone cannot solve this problem. A lot of it is actually out of the control of any government. <laughs> Inflation is driven by by um, international factors like, um, you know, the, the pandemic and, and of course the war in Ukraine and, and supply chain issues that are global in nature. So we have limited control over this, but we can help Canadians cope with inflation in different ways. And I think here again, it, it, collaboration between Ottawa and the provinces and some coordination uh, will be helpful. Yeah, and one of the things, of course, that has been floated is is the idea of governments reducing taxes on, on at least temporarily. Anyway, of course, Doug Ford's done that uh, in Ontario with a temporary reduction in uh, the provincial portion of the gasoline tax, and they're calling on the premier or the prime minister rather uh, to follow suit and do something like that. I, I don't think that's even in consideration in Ottawa, is it? No, and there are two problems with this. The first problem is, of course, the the premier is asking for more money for healthcare, but then they cut taxes which deprive them from revenues that they could use to <laughs> improve the healthcare system. But there's also the environmental aspect of this. So high mm -hmm. gas prices is, of course, bad. And there are some people who really need, um, you know, for, for their business and so forth, where they live in rural areas, they really need their car. Um, but, you know, we have environmental concerns about climate change and high gas prices creates incentives for people to use public transportation or buy an electric car. And we also have incentives in, in some of the provinces and, of course, at the federal level to encourage people to buy electric cars and so forth. So I, I think that, you know, high um, gas prices uh, are seen by environmentalists as an opportunity to, uh, you know, shift away from, uh, um, from um, you know, internal com combustion cars uh, and vehicles. But... I, I think that people do suffer uh, um, uh, from this in a direct way, but I don't think that cutting the, the, the federal um, 
uh, gas taxes is something that will happen uh, at this point because um, the, the government is, you know, uh, uh, keeping its environmental uh, commitments. Um, and I think cutting that uh, gas tax will be seen by and uh, by people even within the party who have kind of this green orientation as a betrayal. Well, usually the consensus after all of these meetings from the premiers is, well, the federal government's not doing enough to help us. And I'm, I'm anticipating uh, something along those lines uh, when these guys finish up today. Uh, as always, Daniel, thank you so much for this. Really appreciate your time today. You're most welcome. Take care. Take care. Daniel Bailon, director of the McGill Institute for Study of Canada, as the premiers meet, and uh, they've got their wish list up there and see just how the government is going to respond. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're heading towards a very important weekend. Uh, what many golfing fans will tell you is maybe one of the biggest weekends, if not the biggest weekend, uh, in the golfing season, and that's the Open. And uh, it's back at St. Andrews uh, this year. Um, but a lot of guys who've been there in the past, a lot of past winners, are not going to be playing. And they're not even talking about the tournament now, just a few days before they tee off. Uh, they're talking about the live Saudi-funded insurgent league versus the PGA. And, and that's dominating the news again. As a matter of fact, there's some even some legal ramifications that we're going to get to in just a couple of seconds. Is it hurting the game of golf? Is this just a minor distraction? Our next guest, uh, I know, has strong opinions on this. Gary McKay is a journalist, of course, for Pro Shop Magazine and the Hamilton Spectator. He's the past president and secretary treasurer of uh, Golf Journalists Association of Canada and uh, one of the most respected uh, voices about golf uh, in this country. Gary, a pleasure to have you back on the program. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Bill. I'm happy to be here. I, I'm, I ticked off. I got to tell you, Gary, as a, as a fan, I, I want to talk about the buildup. I want to talk about Rory at, at the Open. I want to talk about, uh, you know, Xander Shoffley. And, and instead, we're talking about Greg Norman and exemptions and, and the darts being thrown back and forth between these guys. It's, it's, it's distracting, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. It's distracting. And, that, and, and that, I don't see that changing for a year or two anyway. I mean, this, this, I think this is just going to keep uh just keep uh, drawing attention and every either side reacting to the other side and and now heaven forbid the united states government is getting involved and talking antitrust action and in any time the united states government gets involved they'll screw this up somehow <laughs> uh what what gary's referring to is the uh, the justice department down there says that they have opened an investigation into the way the PGA Tour has responded to this. They're not even talking about live. Uh, they're talking about the way the, you know, the way they're banning these guys and saying you can't do this and can't do that, and, and that's antitrust. And, uh, and they sound serious about it, Gary. Oh, absolutely. I, and I think they are serious. And Greg Norman, who I'm not a big fan of, he predicted this is what would happen. So, I mean, he's called that shot, that shot right. Yeah, uh, and Norman, of course, is uh, is right in the middle of the of the f controversy again this week. Is uh, and he bragged about the fact, actually, to an Australian uh, television network a, a couple of months ago that oh, I'll get an exemption. They'll let me play. I'm a, he's a two time champion, past champion, of course. Uh, and they were pretty curt with the reply, weren't they? They just said no. Wait, <laughs> we're not and, and you know what? He, he's not even. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, Greg Norman is not a a, uh, a good friend of Canadian golf either. I mean, he won the Canadian Open on a couple of occasions. And then when they started this Live Golf Tour, he said, well, don't worry, we're not going to put, it, put our events up against any important events on the PJ Tour. And, of course, their first event was up against the Canadian Open. Yeah. So he's no friend to Canadian golf. No, not at all. Well, there's a few guys that I, I, I put in that class, too. But he's, he's 
well, he's he's a pariah in the in in the golf world right now because it, it's almost like they're trying to poach big names out of this. And and Mickelson, of course, I guess is maybe the the most famous of those. But even the, his words came back to be you know to haunt him, of course, you know, with his comments that yeah, they're a bloodthirsty bunch, but boy, there's a lot of money on the table, yeah, uh, it, and a lot of people have gone over to it, Gary. Yeah, it's it's funny if you look at the um, they have basically forty eight players in their in their fields, right? Um, and if you look at it, it's an it, it's interesting because they have a, a number of good players like you know Patrick Reed, Dustin Johnson, Brandon Grace, uh, Brooks Kepka, Matthew Wolf. There's a bunch of them, and then they have a bunch that you could argue if they're not past their prime are getting there. Guys like Mickelson, Westwood, Garcia, McDowell, Poulter, and then you have a bunch of guys you've never heard of, mm-hmm. you know, and you don't know what they've done. So it's an it's an it's an interesting mix anyway. But I thought uh, Tiger Woods' comment uh, about it in the press conference at the British Open, one of the things that he said I thought was very telling. He said, when you only have this number of events and you can't play in the majors, what's your incentive to practice and become a better player? And, and he's right. They, you know, it's all upfront money, and, and you know, everybody in the field gets a, a good chunk of money at every event. What's your incentive to become a better player if you can't play in the majors? And you're going to get that money anyway. And and we're talking like a lot of money. The signing bonuses for some of these these guys, Gary, it's just ridiculous. Well, wasn't Mickelson forty three million dollars? Yeah, something like that. And 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 the Kepka brothers, of course, and and Bryson yeah. DeChambeau, who yep. <laughs> just two days before that, when when it said no, no, I'm a PGA guy, I'm not. No, and two days later, he signs on yeah. with them. I, I don't think that happened within those forty eight hours. But there's something going on here. Yeah, yeah. No, they're 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 just you know uh, throwing tons of money in front of them, and and greed takes hold, and away you go. But it's creating camps, and and I know you know golfing is the golfing fraternity is not just especially the male side. I'm not, I'm not excluding women because we can talk Brooke Anderson all the one, but we're talking about what's going on with Liv at this stage anyway. Uh, I know it's not one big happy family. There's always going to be some differences and some concerns about this, but it's pitting player against player. I mean, you know, and and of course. Every time you have a tournament like the Open coming up here, I mean, Nicholas is over there because he's going to be named an honorary citizen of St. Andrews uh, t- later today, I think, and because he's been a winner in there in the past. And he says, look, at, I just, he says, I'm a friend of Greg Norman, but we don't see eye to eye on this. Yeah. But you've got other guys taking some pretty serious shots at each other. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And the, the other scary thing about this, too, is you, you mentioned it, it's pitting player against player. It's it's also I think beginning, and I want to see how this shakes out. Pitting tournament against tournament, um, yeah. because we just saw not long ago the PGA Tour announced in response to what Liv is doing, they were going to create a series of super events on the PGA Tour. Well, you've already got the World Championship events, you've already got the majors, you've already got the playoffs, and now you're going to have these super events. One of which was going to be Jack's tournament. And so that's going to put the squeeze on other events like the Canadian Open um, to either come up with that sort of money, which will be tough, or face uh, the possibility that players will skip their event to play in these super events. You know, the Canadian Open had a really good field this year, um, uh, maybe slightly to the detriment of, of Jack's tournament. Um, but if, if that's going to be one of the super events, so, so in a way, they're pitting Jack's tournament against the Canadian Open. 
Which is bad, though. And as you and I have talked about in the past, that's been a problem for the Open for forever, really. Right. Uh, you know, the scheduling of it uh, and, you know, the, the now famous story. I still remember, I guess it was, was it the last time it was at Hamilton Golf and Country? You know, when a lot of the big names, you know, just, just tried to, to say, okay, Ernie Els had just won the British Open and basically said, yeah, I think I'm going to pass. I, I know I said I was going to play the Canadian Open, but I'm going to pass. Right. Well, I right. guess RBC got on the phone, who's just one of his major sponsors, and says, that's our tournament. You're playing. Right. Uh, right. And he was very, I mean, I know you were there. He was very reluctant. Uh, he didn't make the cut. It looked like he kicked the ball down the fairway for two rounds, yeah. and then he got on a helicopter and took off. Yeah. Uh, so we've always had that that level of disrespect, which I think it was why it was so refreshing to hear Rory talk about uh, the glowing terms about the tournament, the fans, and everything else in Canada. I think we needed that kind of boost. Well, and then you've got guys like Dustin Johnson and uh, uh, Dustin Johnson and Gray McDowell, who were RBC players. Yeah. And, and Dustin Johnson's picture was on the posters promoting the Canadian yeah. Open at St. George's right up till like two weeks before the tournament when he said, oh, by the way, I'm not coming. I'm going to play the live event. You know, how so and, and this is what bothers me about this. I mean, you know, as you and I, I mean, St. Andrews is hallowed ground for golfers, right? I mean, it's it's an incredible course. It's an incredible tradition. And some of the, the greatest golfers in the world have like, I, I had the, the pleasure of walking the, the, I didn't play at St. Andrews, but as you know, it's a public uh, golf course, really. So on yep. Sundays, it's open to the public. You can't yep. play golf there, but you can walk around. Just walk the grounds, walk your day. And it's, yeah, it's it's like, wow, this is this is so cool. Uh, and you don't like to see it really getting the, the short end of the stick here, because, and that's essentially what's happening this week. Yeah, it, it, you're, you're absolutely right. And, I mean, that's one of the things that uh, the RNA were trying to do when they in, uninvited Greg to the dinner, and it didn't work anyway. I mean, you know, he you knew he was going to talk about it, and I've watched uh, the Golf Channel, and they're talking about it, uh, so that really didn't change anything. You knew. And it, this, it was, it's exactly the same as at the Canadian Open. You know, that, that's all everybody wanted to talk about. Yeah. Yeah, and Rory did talk. I, I find it interesting is, is this is evolving, and it's like you say, it's getting pretty ugly with some of the back and forth. Rory is one of the biggest defenders of the PGA, and I know he, he loves to talk. He's a great personality and a, always a great interview, but he's uh, he's really taken a hard line on this, hasn't he? Well, absolutely. The fact that he he commented when uh, when he won the Canadian Open just a few weeks ago, one of the reasons he was so happy was that put him one win ahead of Norman. Yes. <laughs> he, he was taking shots at him then. Um, but he And he's a great ambassador for us to have as the Canadian Open champion. Well, absolutely. And and uh, he took some such uh, DJ, too. He had some rather derogatory things to say about him. Uh, and, and as you say, about uh, what's going on with uh, some of the other players. Uh, and his comment even yesterday, of course, uh, during one of the media things, where he simply said it would be in the best interests of golf if uh, a live player did not win this tournament, and yeah. there are going to be some of them playing, Mickelson's, I guess, going to play. Yeah, uh, it, that's it, what... he's absolutely right there. You know, if a, if a live player wins it, it's it would be bad for the PGA Tour. I think bad, bad in general. Well, and we saw that, didn't we? I mean, there was a major event, not one of the four majors, but right after the first live event, and and Dustin Johnson and Mickelson and and three or four of the other guys that had already signed on played in that tournament. Uh, and they all played poorly. Uh, Mickelson didn't even make the cut. I think he shot 75 two days in a row or something, or 85, something. It was terrible. And and don't think there weren't a lot of people watching that saying, aha, good on you. Yeah. Uh, it's, and, you it's, know, it's, it's, it's funny. I don't know if you've watched either of the uh, live events, 
but I just find it hard to get into. I mean, I'm admittedly a traditionalist. The idea of you hear music someplace playing in the background and, and just the way they do things and they have, you know, the aces playing the scorpions or whatever they are in this team event. And I, and I thought it's so ludicrous when one of the players on one of these winning teams said, oh, this is just like the Ryder Cup. No, I'm sorry. It's not, it's not anything like the Ryder Cup. It's just a bunch of extra money, you know, that some greedy players can win. But there, that's one of the things. I did try to watch it one Sunday for a couple of minutes, and I just thought, this is this is crazy. Uh, they're trying to put showbiz into this. It's kind of like, you know, the World Football League, you know, with the, the you know, we're not going to kick off the ball. We're going to have a race between two guys and decide who gets the ball. And colored footballs and colored hockey pucks and everything. And it's it's a lot of, of glitz, uh, basically because I think they probably know the product's not really that good. Yeah, I know. I think you're right. They, that, that's exactly it. They know the product's not really that good. And, and the, the announcers are trying to hype it way beyond what it is. Uh, and uh, it just, I couldn't, I couldn't get into it. I watched a bit of it. I, I would be interesting to see, and I haven't, maybe you have, I haven't seen any numbers. We know uh, CHCH has the local rights yeah. um, to do it. I haven't seen any rating numbers uh, for that. Nor have I. No, I haven't yeah. either. It'll be interesting to see. You know, if they're getting any numbers watching it, because it's—I don't know any place else is being shown. You know, so. well, I, and therein lies part of the problem. It's—it's it's all about marketing, and and you know, it's not just that the PGA has been there, and it's not just that the, you know the PGA doesn't have its warts. It, it does, and and I think they admit that. And and maybe this is going to you know spawn a conversation about about the the amount of money in the purses and and some of the other things, but. Uh, I, I find it interesting that, that you know, the, the Rory McIlroy's and, 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 well, even Tiger has been pretty outspoken about this, too. You know, talking about the, the, the heritage of this, and that matters to people. And, you know, it's, it's like if you're a kid playing hockey here in, in southern Ontario, you want to grow up and play for the National Hockey League. You don't want to go play in the KHL just because they offer more money. Uh, and, and, you know, there's something to be said for playing in, with the best in the, in the world. And uh, I, I think that's what these guys are hanging their hat on right now. You know, one small thing that could be good is if we get a bunch of, you know, like I talked about some of these past prime players leaving the PGA Tour. Well, that then opens it up for some good young players who are struggling to make the PGA Tour or close to get on earlier. And that includes probably some Canadians because our national development team is getting better and better. You know, uh, I mean, you probably can remember the time when, we'd be lucky to have two players playing in a PGA Tour event from yeah. Canada. And now we've got six and seven t- players. So this could open it up for some more Canadians to get on the PGA Tour. But is, is it at the detriment of the PGA Tour itself? Well, and that is funny about the evolution. I'm glad you brought that up because we, you look at this and you see there's Mickelson, there's Dustin Johnson, all of them past champions in various events and, and Masters champions. And, and you know, their, their, their CVs are incredible. But that's not where the PGA is. That's not where pro golf is anymore. It's it's Brooks Kepka these days. It's 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 other players that have taken over, and they're not no names. These are guys that win consistently, and and they're the ones that we're watching right now. And I don't see too many of them defecting. No, you're right, and that, and that's a good thing. And you know, I mean, we haven't spoken about it at all, but I mean, it it a lot of this comes down to integrity, and you know, it's money. Obviously, it's money, but do you want to? Uh, do you want to be part of an org of an organization that's funded by Saudi Arabia and what their human rights record is? You know, and I and I think some people are saying no 
because they believe in the PGA Tour system. And I think some are saying no because their integrity tells them, no, I don't want to be part of that. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, as one of them said, uh, it was, it's blood money. And, and, you Absolutely. Know, they, and, and, and they just can't get their head around that. And I, 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 Okay, two quick questions, because we're almost out of time. Tiger's going to play. I uh, hope he makes the cut. Uh, I hope the leg holds out. He looked pretty banged up the last time he played 18 holes. Uh, but he did, uh, he's already played a couple of practice rounds, I guess. Uh, is, is Rory the favorite? Well, you know what? Uh, my heart would tell me uh, I'm pulling for Rory. But how do you pick against Andrew Shoffley? Yeah, I know. This guy's on a roll. Absolutely. I mean, he's, he's the best player in the world, I think, by far right now. I mean, maybe not in world ranking points, but he's right now, the way he's playing, he's the best player in the world. So how do you not pick him? He, uh, he doesn't make mistakes. He's, no. He, no, he's exactly. always in he the fairway. He's nail on the head. He doesn't make mistakes. You know, there, there are other guys that, that, you know, okay, and they make great recovery shots, and, and that's what keeps them on top. And there's two or three of them on the tour that are just like that right now. But this guy, he's, he's steady. Uh, and it's, it's not boring to watch, but, I mean, he just, he just he knows exactly what he's going to do. He has to, okay, you want to stay to the right side of the fairway? He does. And his approach shots are incredible. Uh, I mean, he was untouchable last week in the tournament. You're, you're right. I think you've got to give a, a, a big shout-out to him, and he's got to be right up there near the top when you talk about who's going to win this thing. And we can always help. Mackenzie Hughes hasn't been playing particularly well of late, but he had a good British Open uh, last year. So, yeah, he did. So we're, we can always cheer for him and Corey Connors, too. Corey Connors has got to win a tour event one of these days. He's got to be, He's been so close so often, and, and, and yeah. you're right, Mackenzie's played so well. Uh, I, I love the fact that, you know, I'm watching these guys play Saturday and Sunday now, and that wasn't the case five years ago. You're right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And there's more Gary, it's gonna, Yeah, exactly. And, uh, it's, well, it's a little Canadian pride there. But as you say, with Hadwin and, and, and Mac and, and all these other guys, uh, it's kind of nice to see the Canadians up there too. And, yeah. by the way, uh, when you're watching the TV coverage, uh, when you watch the 18th, the infamous 18th green, uh, you'll notice the Canadian flag hanging from one of the houses there, uh, which is kind of cool. Oh, uh, that's okay. a guy from... It's a guy from Calgary that that owns that house. I talked to the the groundskeeper at, at the, the the course when I was there, and he says, "Yeah, he says he's some multimillionaire guy in in oil and gas or something like that." But he buys it and he brings his friends over there. So that's a little old Canada right there on yeah, St. Andrews. Cool. Gary, uh, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this. Enjoy well, the tournament this weekend. Hopefully, we can talk you, again soon. You too, Bill. Thank you. Take care, Gary McKay, uh, golf aficionado, uh, with his uh, thoughts on what's going on with the Live Tournament and the PGA, and of course the Open, which is starting on Thursday over at St. Andrew's Golf Course. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.